Hi, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, To Think Minimal. It's Tuesday, September 24th, and I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. Today, we're excited to talk with Tim Muras and John Necker. Tim Muras is a former chairman of the Federal Trade Commission and currently a George Mason University Foundation Professor of Law at the Scalia Law School and Senior Counselor at the law firm Sidley Austin. He has experience in every aspect of antitrust enforcement, as well as in key consumer protection issues, including advertising, consumer finance, and privacy regulation. During his lengthy tenure with the FTC, Mr. Muras held multiple high-level posts and was the only person ever to direct both of the FTC's enforcement bureaus. John Necklin is a partner and co-leader of Sidley's telecom and internet competition practice, focusing on telecommunications law, antitrust, and appellate lit- litigation. He served as general counsel of the Federal Trade Commission, as well as deputy general counsel of the Federal Communications Commission, assistant to the Solicitor General, and as a law clerk to D.C. Circuit Judge Stephen Williams and Supreme Court Justice David Souter. And I'm also joined today by Tom Leonard, Senior Fellow and President Emeritus at the Technology Policy Institute. And Tom will start the conversation. Well, welcome, Tim and John, and thanks for doing this. Antitrust enforcement and privacy and consumer protection issues are both in the domain of the Federal Trade Commission, which is the agency used to head Tim and the agency for which he used to be general counsel, John. And so that means that the FTC is at the center of the debates about what to do about the large tech platforms. Unfortunately, the current debates seem in many instances to be uninformed by history, which brings us to the very interesting paper that you two wrote recently called Antitrust in the Internet Era, the Legacy of the United States versus A&P, which is contained in a volume, which I had the pleasure to edit, that was published last year in the Review of Industrial Organization. There was an AMP in my neighborhood when I was growing up, and in fact, they were quite ubiquitous, but many people in our audience probably don't remember AMP. So maybe you could start out with a brief introduction to the company and its history and what it was. Well, I'll start that out because by way of full disclosure, I should mention that I was once an employee of AMP. <laughs> my second job after my first unsuccessful stint as a cook at the local Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> was to take a job as a bagger at the AMP. I worked for $3.50 an hour. My brother had that job. Really? At yeah. AMP. Yeah. And I wore a little tag that said, I'm watching my P's and Q's. And I basically just bagged groceries. And it was a delightful little store. It actually wasn't that little. It, this was in the 1980s. It had actually grown to be a genuine supermarket, but it was facing increasing competition from the likes of Kroger and Safeway and others in the vicinity. And so the company was beginning to fall on hard times, and it wasn't really long after my experience there that AMP collapsed. But in its heyday, it was the nation's leading retailer and a truly an innovator in many respects. And it was the largest retailer for 40 years, which is something that even Walmart has not surpassed. The AMP was such a big deal in the United States that when the young John Updike fresh off writing the greatest sports essay in history, which is about Ted Williams's last at bat in The New Yorker. He, in the several months after, wrote a short story that people in my generation had to read. And he, he wanted to pick a setting that people in America would understand to exemplify mid-century American culture. And it was the A&P, and he called the story the A&P. It was a prominent part of our country. So why did you all decide to write this article at this time? Well, this is a story that I learned and shared with John to see what he thought of it. I first learned it in the mid-1970s when I was very young, in my mid-20s, in the mid-1970s. 
I was part of a task force working at the Federal Trade Commission, but the Justice Department was studying the Robinson-Patman Act, which is a statute that I'm sure that we'll get to, which was passed to harm big companies like A&P. And I learned the story that we told in this article about how there was this incredible reaction to the A&P. And when I first started teaching at the Law and Economics Center at the University of Miami before I went to work in the Reagan administration, I taught the story. But the story it went into ancient history and became a box in my basement until the recent backlash against big tech companies. There had been somewhat of a backlash against Walmart, which bears many of the same earmarks of the A&P. But the, what's happened with big tech now is very much like what happened to the A&P. So after talking with John, we thought it would be a good story to tell. And we actually approached Amazon for funding. So your article is in, in many respects, a response to an article by Lena Kahn that appeared in the Yale Law Journal, which is in many respects kind of a, a reflection of a certain vein of new thinking in the antitrust world. It's really neo-old thinking. Neo, or neo-old think, thinking, some, sometimes called hipster antitrust, sometimes called neo-Brandeisian. My first question, before we get into the substance, you know, why do you think an article by a second or third year law student got has so much influence? First of all, I don't think our article was really a response specifically to Lena. I mean, it's a response to a much broader movement that right. you see throughout the U.S. and has grown even more pronounced since then. I mean, antitrust for the first time in recent memory has become a central topic of discussion in presidential campaigns. But her article focused yeah. on Amazon and you did. And you point out the the parallels between A&P and Amazon. Yeah, that is true. Retail is actually a great place to start if you want to understand the distinction that antitrust draws between harm to competitors and harm to competition. As recently as three or four years ago, it was a consensus position, even in a Democratic-controlled FTC, that antitrust exists for the protection of competition, which means ultimately for the promotion of consumer welfare. and It wasn't until very recently that people have started pushing back against that fundamental premise and suggesting that really maybe, in fact, we should be protecting little competitors against too vigorous competition by very large companies that can undersell the little competitors by virtue of their greater efficiency. And when Lena Khan wrote the article about Amazon, I think one of the moves she makes is here's this company that is able to... You know, it has, in fact, like Walmart before, reshaped American retail. And it's done that just by being unremittingly efficient and by cutting price to the bone, not in any predatory way. No one suggests that Amazon is going to push other retailers out of the market, monopolize retail, and then jack up rates to monopoly levels. Instead, I think the concern is they're just too good and we need to protect their rivals by forcing it to be less good, and by forcing it to cut consumers less good of a deal. I, I know it's not just a response to Lena Khan. Well, I was going to say something along the lines of that, but broader. Lena Khan is one of many who are attacking big tech. And that doesn't mean that you can't take a look at big tech, but traditional antitrust, as it's existed for the last 40 years, has had certain prerequisites. They've looked at whether consumers are harmed. They've started with questions like, are there preliminarily you know, a significant market share in a real antitrust market? 
And if you look across these so-called, you know, GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon, you get strikingly different answers. You know, Google, this doesn't mean necessarily that Google has violated the antitrust laws, but Google at least has uh, real market shares, big, big market shares. Apple, in the main product uh, in which Apple competes, it's dwarfed by Android, by Google. Amazon doesn't even have a majority in online retail. And online retail is still pales before total retail. And Amazon is, in fact, moving into brick and mortar retail. And their brick and mortar retail people, of course, are they're moving together. And it's an interesting question. The people at Walmart say, well, Amazon is moving toward us and we're moving toward Amazon. But we like our position. Walmart is what, two and a half times bigger? Yeah, actually three and a half. Three and a half now. Mm-hmm. Wow. In terms of what, revenues? Revenues. U.S. revenues. Yeah. yeah. And they have a tremendous customer base. And people somehow believe that Amazon has this gigantic information advantage. But one of the, the history of A&P, Walmart, and Amazon is quite interesting because in many ways they've done the same thing. And A&P did it first. And we talk about it. They use vertical integration. They use, you know, squeezing out the middleman. And they use information for its day, and I'll turn it over to John here to give some examples in a minute. But for its day, they use some really innovative uses of information. And we can talk about Walmart and Amazon in a second, but John, did you want to pick yeah, up so, on that? Yeah, I mean, so for example, I mean, you know, AP was able to use its far-flung operations to determine what kinds of butter were favored by consumers and what areas they were able to adjust their bakery schedules so as to avoid bread going stale because of insufficient demand. These were some of the advantages that it had over its competitors. But a big part of it was simply AMP's ability to cut out the middleman, as Tim said. And that understandably annoyed the middlemen who were disintermediated. And they got together with Congress and they passed something that was originally called the Wholesale Grocers Protection Act, later renamed the Robinson-Patman Act, which we spend a, a lot of time in the article discussing. One difference, though, between A&P and Amazon is in the article, you talk about how big A&P became and how its revenues surpassed a billion dollars, was it, for the first time? They were bigger than any other. They became bigger than any other yep. grocer. But they at the same time, any other retail. Any other retail. They, they were the largest retailer in the United States for 40 years. Yeah. But Amazon is, you're saying, actually pretty small in right. the, not, the retail. Mean, no, no, it's not, it's not small, but it's, it's proportional. I mean, it's quite a bit smaller than... Walmart is also smaller than Kroger. So do you think Amazon is having the same kind of impact on retailing that A&P did? Look, Amazon has undoubtedly had a significant impact. It hasn't had the impact that Walmart had, and it remains to be seen You know what will happen in the future. We've never talked to Jeff Bezos, but from what reading about him in the paper, he understands that there are no guarantees and there are no certainties. Two of the greatest retailers of the 20th century, A&P and Sears, are gone. And we moved to Southern California when I was in seventh grade, and A&P wasn't a factor, but boy, Sears sure was. I can't place my finger on it right now, but there was a New York Times article that came out, I think, in the mid-80s that talked about the competition between Sears and, and Kmart. Kmart. And the question was whether one of them was going to be able to leapfrog the other. The article didn't mention Walmart. And within two or three years, Walmart became larger than either the other two of them. And then a couple of years after that, Walmart became larger than the two of them combined, Kmart and Sears. I mean, we do see in the retail space a succession of very successful companies that eclipse 
prior companies. There's no reason to think that's going to change. And you have this incredible dynamic way of selling. Toys, when I was a kid, the Sears catalog, Sears was a big deal. Then you had the category killers. Toys R Us was a big example. Well, Sears is gone and Toys R Us are gone. Walmart is now the biggest seller of toys. But do you suggest in your article that one of the reasons, at least, that A&P is gone is because the government went after it? It wasn't just a natural... Well, there are lots of reasons. The main reasons to which probably the government, all their attention on the government certainly didn't help, was they did a lousy job of succession planning because these brothers who essentially inherited the company in many ways and who did a masterful job of building the company died more quickly than they had planned on. And they did a lousy job in succession planning. And post-World War II, they did not do a good job of understanding you know, what was happening in the Sunbelt. I personally think, you can't tell, their battle with the government that went on for beginning with state tax issues through, as we described in the paper, the Robinson-Patman Act, then the government sued them criminally, then the government tried to break them up. All that took 20 plus years. The most precious attention of the executives who run a company is their time. And that took an enormous amount of their time. So these catastrophic, two catastrophic mistakes I mentioned could not have been anything but hurt by this attention to the government, but it's very hard to show cause of it. Yeah, I think the other thing is remember that AMP couldn't patent its business model. And yeah, it, sure. It was a business model that could be replicated by anyone that had sufficient capital to start up rival chains. And so you saw the emergence of lots of rival chains that created significant competition with the AMP. And some of them had lower cost structures. So AMP, for example, was a union shop. Some of these other companies were not. And so they allowed, you know, that fact allowed the other companies, in many cases, to undersell AMP. And they were very slow to go in the HBA, Health and Beauty Aids. They were very slow to go in it. You know, if you look at what's in a, you know, 100,000 square foot giant supermarket now, there's a whole lot of things that weren't in a supermarket even 30 years ago. And certainly not 40 years ago or 50, it would have been 50 years ago, was still in A&P's heyday. And A&P, that began in the 50s when people started to expand the things that were in supermarkets. And A&P was very slow. Why, why do you that. think Walmart was able to avoid a, a populist antitrust? I personally think it's the accident of geography. Hmm. Sam Walmart was born in Missouri. Sam Walton. Walton. Yeah. I say Walmart. <laughs> it would have been more convenient if it said Walmart. Yeah. Like Tim yeah. Apple. Yeah. 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 Sam Walton was boy. He was a star athlete. He, was, he actually worked in JCPenney before World War II. And he started the stores in Arkansas. And they exploded. And their model, you know, because of where they were, that they didn't approach big cities. And the New York Times story that John mentioned is the perfect illustration of this. The big media markets in the big cities, you know, didn't hear about them until it was too late to do anything about them in the way that it happened. In states like California, there's still, and there was a tremendous fight to get Walmart supercenters into that state. Walmart came very late to grocery stores. Walmart is the largest, you know, grocer in the country now. But it's only in this century that that's happened. And also, we should say Walmart didn't really escape a populist Revolt. Yeah, it had a populist yeah. revolt, but but it was yeah. never about antitrust, or I guess I shouldn't say never. Well, it was but, about putting smaller local businesses out of business. Yeah. So, and, I mean, Barry Lynn was making many of the same arguments about right. Walmart that he's making many of that, No, in fact, he wrote a book. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it was the same kind of argument, but it didn't happen 
in the stage that it happened with the A&P, where there was enough political clout, you know, the, the relative strength of the two would have allowed the kind of backlash that might have had a difference. By the time people were awake, there were probably Walmarts were entrenched in places where there were 40 United States senators. And that would have been very hard to do. So, so what do you think that the critics of antitrust, the Lena Khans and the Barry Lins, get wrong about the way antitrust actually works? Well, I think that they conflate mainstream antitrust analysis with a very particular way of applying it, which they call the Chicago School. So one of the points that we make in our article is antitrust is actually a very big tent. There are lots of people who can disagree about what doctrine best promotes consumer welfare over the long run. And I saw some of the disagreements when I was at the FTC, but I also saw that the disagreements shared a common intellectual discipline, which was let's apply economics in a sensible way to figure out what consumers better off over the long term. And by consumers, I don't even necessarily mean just individual end users of goods and services. I mean, anyone who is a consumer or for that matter, a buyer in a market that might otherwise be subject to antitrust concerns. And I think that the one of the rhetorical moves that the populist movement in antitrust engages in it quite often is this notion that if you support what I'm calling mainstream antitrust, which means just a dedication to economics and consumer welfare, that means that you are the product of the Reagan administration, myopic focus on making corporations big and prosperous. And that's not at all accurate. There are lots of progressive post-Chicago antitrust scholars who come at the whole set of antitrust issues from a different perspective, but still maintain the intellectual integrity that I think is common to mainstream antitrust. But it ultimately is about focusing on one goal and not throwing a bunch of incommensurable values into the pot and then picking some outcome unpredictably out of the pot based on how you balance consumer welfare against other societal objectives. I mean, when I read her article, I thought it was one of the more anti-consumer articles I'd ever read because she talks about, you know, Amazon lowering prices and I said, that's a bad thing. I mean, I mean, I mean, to be fair to her, I mean, I think that she probably does view consumer welfare as one of the legitimate objectives of antitrust. Was, but I think she it was just, way down the list. <laughs> but she, and, and I think this is true of most of the populace. They believe that it should not be the singular objective of antitrust. They believe that lots of other things should be thrown in there. You know, Tim Wu has an article in which he says that one of the goals of antitrust should be to equalize political power. And so on the margin. Whatever that means. Yeah, whatever that means. He believed, for example, that, you know, one of the objectives of merger enforcement should be to look to see whether two companies merge that'll give a boost to an otherwise unrepresented political faction. And I hear that and I'm thinking, you can't possibly mean that because you have just echoed what President Trump said about the Sinclair Tribune merger and how it was such a shame that the FCC didn't prove that merger because it would have brought a much, in Trump's words, a much needed conservative voice to the American people. Whereas Trump said, you know, it was a travesty that the Comcast NBC Universal merger, which was much bigger, Trump said, that that was able to proceed in that, in, despite Trump's preference for conservative speech. And I, I'm going into this because I think one of the dangers of throwing additional values into the pot as part of 
antitrust analysis, forcing courts to weigh consumer welfare against <coughs> other variables such as political influence. That is a recipe for a very politically biased enforcement of antitrust, and that's very dangerous. It's the political weaponization of antitrust. Although it's also kind of ironic, though, that it's because many on the left and many on the, I don't know what we call it, the Trump right, are aligned in this potential use of antitrust. That's right. And a lot of those people are upset at what they perceive as the political biases of big tech. And some of it, I think, is directed at, you know, what they think is the suppression of speech. Obviously, that doesn't involve, uh, I don't think, Apple or Amazon, but I think a lot of it's aimed at Google, I guess. I mean, one of the themes of the, for want of a better term, the Brandeis or the new, the critics of antitrust, which is also shared by more mainstream antitrust, uh, not obviously not everybody, but more mainstream antitrust scholars, is that in general, there's been an under-enforcement of the antitrust laws, that we we just need to have more vigorous enforcement. What's your view of that? Well, if you look at FTC enforcement of the antitrust laws in the last 40 years, there are two periods that spike, and they've both been associated with me. (laughs) Uh, So I sometimes am curious. These are not... So you think since you've been gone, there's been an under-enforcement? Well, there have been an under-enforcement of the kind of cases I wish that they would bring more of, which are cases of people bringing cases against people for abusing the government. I think that, although I will say this in praise of John's work when he was there and the FTC, there are two doctrines that protect the right to use the government. One is called the Norr-Pennington Doctrine, which protects your First Amendment rights to petition the government. The other is called the State Action Doctrine, which protects your rights under certain circumstances to get the state to harm consumers. And the FTC has been active, you know, since I was director of the Bureau of Competition 35 years ago in restricting the misuse of those two doctrines. And when John was at the FTC, they were quite good, especially on the state action doctrine. But I think there's plenty to do there, and I wish the government would do more. And that had a lot to do with what we did and what I call those two spikes. Asking for more antitrust enforcement is perfectly fine from a conceptual perspective. As I said before, there are many different ways within the big tent of conceptualizing what doctrines are best for consumers and what cases are best brought. So let's take a concrete example, vertical merger enforcement. Robert Bork and Stephen Salem are both part of what I will call mainstream antitrust in that they both believe it is appropriate to apply economics to determine what makes consumers better off in the long run, and that should be the primary purpose of antitrust. They would have very, very different approaches to merger enforcement, including specifically with respect to vertical merger enforcement, because Salop sees the danger of competitive harms in contexts where Bork would not. And also, obviously, people have different views about how concentrated industries can become before the efficiencies of consolidation are overwhelmed by the competitive concerns of excess concentration. But those are all debates that I think are healthy to have, and I'm glad we're having, and we've had them for many years. They're very different in kind from the sorts of criticisms of antitrust that we see now, because those criticisms are not about different methodologies or different ways of thinking about how to slice the empirical data. They are arguments about why consumer welfare shouldn't be paramount in the first place. And one of the problems with that approach, and it's really just a deeply logical problem, is that there is no 
coherent way to balance consumer welfare against the other objectives the populists would throw into the mix. And so what you would end up with is a highly impressionistic, subjective, and often politically biased regime that is not appropriately applied by antitrust agencies or courts. You know, it's odd. I mean, you know, Elizabeth Warren's message is essentially our government has failed us and what we need is more government. And if you look in, in antitrust, they are really calling for a return to the 1970s when you had the populists out there attacking predatory pricing, when you had merger standards where the marginal merger was if you had a merger that reduced the number of significant competitors from seven to six, that was bad. Now the marginal merger is four to three, and there are people who want to, and that, that was codified by the Obama administration, the four to three, the, when the Reagan administration published guidelines, the marginal merger was six to five. And in terms of big tech, they want to break up these big companies. And as John authored this part of what we wrote, and I think it's very eloquent, if you look at these companies in the United States, these big tech companies, these Silicon Valley companies, they produced enormous benefits. And that could have only happened in the United States with a stable legal regime. And that's an important part of American exceptionalism. And these people, the way the European antitrust works and the way the progressives and the populists on the right, their views of antitrust would have made it very hard for those companies to prosper the way they have. Because what would have happened is as they grew, they would have faced antitrust advice under this new view of the world that would have told them that they should stop growing. They should stop being aggressive. Yeah, go, so let's, go do some, let's do some thought experiments. Yeah, go let's ahead. say that it's like 10 years ago and you're Netflix's antitrust lawyer. And they say, we want to offer a really low-priced streaming video service to American homes. And should you say, there is some concern that the government will come after you for abusing your market power because your low prices and the convenience of your streaming service is going to put out of business all the Potomac videos of the world, all these little video stores, employ people in neighborhoods throughout the United States. You should really think twice about that. Or how about, you know, when Amazon introduced the Kindle, that was on balance probably bad for bookstores because it became suddenly very convenient and inexpensive for people to get books on demand. Should you have been in the position as an antitrust lawyer counseling Amazon to go slow on that Kindle idea because that's going to be really harmful to these mainstays of the American literary scene, you know, these local bookstores? These are the sorts of advice that we hope that antitrust lawyers will never have to give their clients. But if you incorporated a populist regime into the U.S., you would have to start giving advice like that because there's no way that you can assure clients that just because what they're doing is really good for consumers, they'll be okay if the result of doing well by consumers is that they're going to marginalize a bunch of much smaller businesses. So where does this end up? Do you think, will this sort of populist approach continue or once the presidential election happens, will everyone forget all about it because this is just a good no, political I think, line? No, I, well, I think this is a broad social movement, but I don't think that any of these objectives can be accomplished under current antitrust law. Part of the reason for that and is because we have an independent judiciary, and the judiciary is full of judges who really like the rule of law and, you know, administrable principles that can be applied in a predictable way from case to case. And I think you're going to have a great deal of reluctance among those judges to accept 
a new chaotic regime that is grounded in subjective dislike of large companies to the exclusion of other more predictable objectives. Well, I think that's, I'm not as optimistic in mergers. I think that's largely true. And I think John was talking about single firm. True. I think with mergers, though, because mergers are divisible, because you can resolve mergers by spinoffs and things, I suspect that that a new regime would ratchet up merger standards significantly because they will talk businesses, because for one, businesses will become more cautious, and two, they will talk businesses into divestitures. They will try to, particularly if the Democrats win, and if they win the Senate, the filibuster will go. Who knows what they'll do with the Supreme Court? But they will find a circuit that's favorable, file their cases there, and try to push the law as far as they can. And that may even be true under single firm. So with respect to mergers, so that, I mean, there's a lot of people who think, well, a number of people who think that enforcement against, between potential competitors, even if they're not actual competitors, should be much more stringent. Is that, can you do that? With there, the there's a set of legal standards they have to meet under existing law. So you would need legislative but Tim change. is kind of suggesting that even without a legislative change, the pressure of the agencies might have an effect on that. In order to win under the actual potential competition doctrine, the agency would have to show a greater than not likelihood of entry by the you know one of the parties to the merger. Right. And in fact, the FTC lost a case on that very issue when I was general counsel. I remember it well. <laughs> well, I think potential competition it is a difficult area to win, and it should be. And particularly, the you know what's going on now is there people are thinking they're not looking at the merger the appropriate way at the time that it occurred, and they're thinking of you know, what happened after the fact, when, when what happened after the fact probably represented a lot of, you know, efficiency benefits from the acquiring company. But, you know, you can, look, you could conceive of cases where someone actually purchased a real potential competitor and, you know, mothballed it or something. And, you know, that was a, a potential antitrust case, but that would be an extreme set of things. So what do you think about the way antitrust is organized in this country? I mean, we have to change the subject a little bit. We have, you know, we have two federal antitrust agencies. We have 51 or 52 state antitrust enforcers. Is that a good system? Why don't we take the federal dimension first? Tim and I probably both believe that it's useful to have two federal antitrust agencies. Is that fair, Tim? Yes. Yeah. And why is that? Well, I think it's useful because if you combined everything into one agency, you would lose something that you have now. The agency would be so big that, you know, right now you're able to have a Bill Baxter or a Bob Potofsky who can actually be an informed decision maker of the major decisions because the agency is small enough. If you combined everything, it would look more like a traditional government agency where you wouldn't have that kind of person. I also think I don't want a consumer protection agency stripped of the benefits of antitrust and the CFPB and the Obama and the Elizabeth Warren model is the perfect reason not to have that. And so far, there really hasn't been any downside to having two antitrust agencies, but that's because historically the agencies have gotten along pretty well and the clearance process has functioned in a healthy manner. It is true that that is beginning to change somewhat, and that's the source of concern. Wait, before we move on, why is the CFPB an example of why they should have antitrust authority? Because I think that the FTC model, which is followed in agencies around the world, when you put the two together, there are definite, and the people who run the agency do both parts. 
there are definite advantages from the market-oriented antitrust aspects have positive spillover effects on consumer protection. There are some positive spillover effects that work the other way as well. But for purposes of this conversation, where we're talking about antitrust, I think that causes, you know, that market orientation has a positive impact for people who do consumer. Wait, so what about the 52 state? Listen, I mean, the, we have a federal system <laughs> where states are sovereign and can proceed either under their own laws or under federal laws if they choose to. And as long as you have courts as intermediaries between the targets of the investigation and the prosecutors, no matter how many there are, you know, as long as the courts are applying a consistent set of rules and doing so in good faith, then I'm optimistic about the outcome. I don't have a problem with Well, in the consumer protection world, they're a real add-on. The FTC, you know, someone calculated about five years ago, there were like 3,000 fraud cases in telemarketing and the majority, you know, working together and the majority of those were done by the states in joint projects. So there was a real add-on. There hasn't been that sort of thing. The state resources devoted to antitrust are way fewer than the resources devoted to consumer protection. There are lots of local problems. I wish that the states would pay more attention to the occupational licensure problems. When I was at the FTC, we spent a lot of time. We actually went out and trained people in the states, and there were state AGs who were interested in that. I mean, they're under a lot of political pressure not to be involved with that. There are some useful things that they can do to the extent that, that they try to become new representatives of progressive antitrust, and I think we're headed for trouble, but it's, it's way too early. To so I'm happy that Tim and I have something to disagree about here, <laughs> because to me, there is always a danger of under-enforcement, and it does not bother me to have states enter the scene to represent a more vigorous view of antitrust than a particular administration might. You, no matter what you think of the merits of the Sprint T-Mobile merger, I think it's healthy that um, states are able to challenge that, even though this administration has decided that merger is okay. Yeah, I agree. If the states were applying consumer welfare, as John and I think about it, and they just disagreed in a rare instance. They have to apply it because they're before federal courts that are applying. Well, they don't have to the way they, I mean, they have to if they want to win, but if, but I mean, who knows what, I mean, these guys are elected politicians and. One of them is my co-author. And he's a a great guy (laughs) whom I admire. But the states, you know, these guys do have different motivations. But my comment was directed to something that they haven't done yet, but they are doing investigations. If they decide to try to apply, you know, this new populist economics in a single firm area, you know, I think that would be a bad thing. But John is right that that they do have to face the judiciary. But, you know, as as you mentioned, John, there is increasing concern that the two federal agencies are not playing well together. Has something changed? And if so, why? I think I'll, I'll always turn to Tim. Tim, why did it work so well when, when you were... Well, it's not clear that... Look, there always have been clearance problems. They usually don't boil over into the public. And I happen to know more about clearance than almost anyone, unfortunately, because we, when I was chairman, we actually reached an agreement to stop fighting because there's always been, been fighting over cases behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. The Justice Department withdrew, which was a mistake, because a senator in appropriations threatened to punish them. And when he called me up and said he was going to abolish the congressional office, I laughed 
uproariously, which really pissed him off. I, I said, that's it. <laughs> and the congressional person was in the room with me. She wasn't very happy about that. But, <laughs> but what's happening now, if true, and from the hearing they had last week, it sounds like they're both going to do an investigation of the same company on the same issues. And that's unprecedented, as near as I can tell. Is it because there's so much pressure to be involved in these big, I have, big ticket cases? I have no idea. Scott and I both come from a telecom background where it's routine for two federal agencies to conduct almost identical investigations of the same transaction. And that's a problem in that context. But the reason it's mainly a problem is because the FCC doesn't actually have to persuade a court of anything in order to stop a merger from happening. You're talking about FCC and DOJ. Right. right. The yeah. FCC has to affirmatively say it's okay. Right, yeah. right, right, right. And if it says nothing, there's literally nothing you can do. Well, yes. But look, this could be a one-off. I don't know. Well, I me, hope so. Let me ask another. And then we should probably wrap up. And then we should wrap up. Another question about the world of the FTC. And I realize that these are issues you may have had some involvement in. But we have recently had, in the privacy sphere, we've had two settlements involving three, two decisions along partisan lines with relatively vociferous dissents by the dissenting parties. How much is that a change from kind of traditional collegiality at the FTC? And does it disturb you? And what, what, what's your well, look, the FTC, I'm the only person that's ever been the director of both enforcement bureaus, and it was during the first Reagan term. And that was a commission divided on policy grounds. There's a book called The Politics of Regulatory Change, A Tale of Two Agencies, written by a now, uh, unfortunately, extinct species. They were two guys who were academics, part of the Democratic Leadership Council, you know, moderate Democrats. I mean, real moderate Democrats. They're not entirely extinct, Tim. <laughs> well, well, there's one right here, but 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 they're extinct in the uh, another one, yeah, in the candidates running for president. Yeah. But anyway, that was a rhetorical jibe. Uh, so I hope there are many millions out there. And the point of that now we're in a time, believe it or not, Ronald Reagan was less popular in early 1983 than Donald Trump was in early 2019, which are the, the equivalent times of the political cycle. Now, it was because Ronald Reagan had an economy where unemployment was like 11%. Who knows what the current president's unemployment, I probably couldn't get negative, but you know, obviously there's no comparison between the two economies. And Reagan, the economy you know, got way, way better and he won a landslide. But in the election of 1982, very much like the election of 2018, the Republicans had effective control of the House because of what were called blue dog Democrats, all became Republicans later. And the Republicans lost that in the election of 1982. So you had you know, the Democrats very much on the march in 1983, and we had a very split politically commission, and that we had very contentious, the GM Toyota vote that year was three to two. The oil mergers were controversial. There were lots of controversial votes and decisions. And, but this is the first time since the end of the first Reagan term when the FTC has really been split like this. But there's no reason that something has to last forever. And I think it's better when the people at the FTC share the same policy framework, but obviously they don't know. Let's not forget the FTC also is bolstered by its career staff, which is quite excellent and consists mainly of people who believe it's important to apply sound economic logic to the problem of 
enhancing consumer welfare. So even though that focus may not be represented in all of the commissioner's offices, it is part of the institutional heritage that would be very difficult for any chairman or commissioner to dissolve. Well, and that's a difference. When we took over in the fall of 1981, the career staff at the FTC was full of people who had been there in the 1970s when the FTC's operating philosophy looked like the, the CFPB and consumer protection and the progressive slash populist now. And, uh, you know, many, 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 many of them left. There were over 100 people in the Bureau of Consumer Protection left fairly quickly when I was the Bureau Director. Great. Well, thank you very much. It was great. A pleasure. Thanks very much.